So welcome uh, again. Today we begin a new six-week series. This series will carry us into our fall series. Um, we will begin a study of the book of Nehemiah this fall. Um, but for the next six weeks until we begin that series, we're doing a short little, uh, maybe topical-based is the best way to call it. It's certainly a thematic um, reality of, of Scripture. All throughout Scripture, we're going to look at different passages studying this one theme we're calling the series uh, The Questions That God Asks. Uh, there's many instances where the Lord shows up to his people, uh, particularly in the Old Testament, Jesus in the New Testament, but the Lord, uh, the Creator, shows up to his people with very intentional, very personal, very particular questions uh, to his people and to individuals. So we're going to be studying these interactions and noticing the depth and the intentionality and the healing and the power of the questions that God asks to his people. And our hope over these next six weeks is, is, is that we would not just learn that the Bible teaches that we have a God who asks questions, but our, our hope, uh, a big reason why we want to study this idea of the questions that God asks is that we would experience for ourselves God asking us these questions that there's a power, there's a, there's a reality, there's a relationship that, that God is not far off. He is very near. And through the power of his Holy Spirit, he actually can speak to you. <laughs> he can actually show up and through his word and through the questions that we've seen him ask his people, he asks us as well. So our hope is that in this time we would experience the questions of God in a fresh way. So the first question that God asks comes in the first pages of Scripture and the opening pages in the Garden of Eden where the story of the world begins. So if you will turn with me uh, to page two. Uh, we're gonna be at the very end of Genesis chapter two. We're gonna read the end of Genesis chapter two about halfway through Genesis chapter three. This will be on the screen if you don't have it. Genesis chapter two, uh, last verse, verse 25 says, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, 
Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. It's the word of the Lord. Mm. So if you ask any um, Jewish or Old Testament scholar or read any commentary uh, worth its weight on Genesis 1 through 3, everyone agrees. Everyone agrees. It doesn't matter what theological camp or even necessarily what you believe about um, the story of the Bible. Everybody that has written, given their life to study the book of Genesis agrees that especially Genesis 1 through 3 is a majestic piece of literary art. It's a poetic treasure chest, it's a literary masterpiece, it's deep, it's masterfully written, and after thousands and thousands of years, people are still plumbing out its depths in many fields of study. We should feel when we're reading this, um, if, you, if you are unfamiliar with this common um, illustration here, Lord of the Rings, we should feel as we read the opening pages of Genesis 1 through 3 that we are entering the Shire for the first time. This is where the epic begins and some major things are about to happen and be said and take place. And woven into this story is, is not just the inception of the grand narrative of the history and the story of the world, the origin of the universe and all that is in it. Contained in Genesis 1 through 3 is a cosmology, a sociology, an anthropology, and perhaps most importantly, a theology. If you'll let it, these pages will not just tell you about your world and your nature. These pages will also tell you about the God who spoke these things into existence, formed these things, and also enters into them. But for our purposes today, there, there is literally an incalculable amount we could study just from this little section of the end of chapter 2 through chapter 3. We don't have time, uh, unless I feel the Spirit moving, to uncover everything that, that, that could be uncovered in these verses. But today we're looking at the questions that God asks. And so in order to understand these questions that God shows up in the garden after the fall to ask his children, in order for us to understand that, we need to kind of understand all that's going on before and after the questions. The questions are this fulcrum in the middle of all that's going on in the garden. What makes these questions powerful? What makes them so pointed? And what do they show us about the Lord and what do they show us about ourselves? So the place to start, there we started our journey in, in the garden, is at the end of chapter 2. The place to start is at the end of the capping off of the description of the Garden of Eden. Genesis 1 is the seven days of creation. Genesis 2 is kind of a zoom in on the creation of man and the animals and, and man and woman uh, being made in God's image. It's kind of a zooming in on the sixth day of creation. And here's how the creation has been described before chapter 2 ends. We're told it was good, it was good, it was good, and it was very good. There's these magnificent rivers, we're told, in Genesis 2, splitting off into other magnificent rivers. There's gold, we're told. There's fertile land. There's animals and humanity living in harmony. And the sun is dancing in the day, and the stars and the moon are singing at night, and the mountains are thundering, and the trees are in bloom. This is paradise. This is uh, the, the image that comes to mind if you read Genesis 1 and 2 is that a king threw a party, and not one time did the king say, that's too much. This is the Lord, the king of the universe, the one who spun the cosmos into existence, throwing everything he's got at his creation and delighting in it. At the very center of this creation, there is a land, we're told in Genesis 2, known as Eden. And in the center of Eden, there is a garden. 
So we've called it the Garden of Eden our, our whole lives. That's what it's called in Scripture. But more particularly, there is a garden in Eden. And Eden is a Hebrew word that literally means delight. There is a garden in the land of delight. The garden of delight where God is delighting in all that he had made. It's a paradise of extravagance. All the senses are being maximized. All the ways one, of, uh, one can enjoy something, the way that we have learned to delight in the good creation through all of its avenues, the way that we delight in, in the same way but without sin, God is dancing and delighting in the garden with his creation. He's dancing, he's enjoying, he's creating, he's reveling. We understand this emotion, and I'm hoping it's stirring your imagination to try to go there in your mind. This is the emotion when you're water skiing or when you're at your favorite concert. This is what you experience when you're at a nice restaurant. This is what you experience when you're with old friends. Like the bliss of experiencing life the way it was meant to be. And we have these little glimpses, these little moments of going, this, feels, this is what it feels like to be alive. This is what it feels like to enjoy something and not to be caught up in the darkness. This is the delight of creation. The Garden of Eden is where heaven and earth collided. The Garden of Eden is where the joy of the presence of God was experienced and enjoyed. And so I want you to imagine the Garden of Eden, this garden of delight that God puts at the center of his good, his very good creation, is the way things were intended to be. The way life was in the garden is the way that it was meant to be. The joy and the dancing and the celebrating and the experience of being in God's presence in a joyful, not monotonous, in, a, in, a, in an extravagant, maximized, all the joy kind of way. So that's the picture. And then the way that the narrator of Genesis 1 through 3 wants us to know, and he's trying to get across to the reader, you have no idea how good this was. He, he cannot express to us the bliss of the garden of delight. He's trying, so the way that he wants us to get that picture, his capstone, the cherry on top of how he wants the reader to understand this is how good this actually was, comes at the very end, verse 25. The finishing touch that Genesis 2 puts on the canvas painting that Adam and Eve were in the garden with their maker, and then this is what it says. This is trying to literally blow your mind with how good it was. Verse 25. And they were naked, and they were not ashamed. And they were naked, and they felt no shame, other translations say. Can you even imagine such a place? The fact that that doesn't immediately jump off the page at you as the greatest part of the description of the Garden of Eden shows how much it is a description of the greatest part of the Garden of Eden. We are, we are almost like, who cares, like naked and felt no shame, like that sounds, well, that sounds awkward, like why, why would that be good? But I want you to pause for a minute and try to literally imagine a reality where you are so full of wonder, you are so full of laughter, you are so not thinking about you all the time, you are so lost in the delight of your maker, you are so experiencing the bliss of what it means to be made in his image and to enjoy his good creation without being narcissistic and belly gazing and thinking about how you look and thinking about what's happened to you and thinking about all that you've done that you're, that you're ashamed of. Here's what he says. Can you imagine a reality where you could literally have nothing to cover you and feel no shame about it? It's almost unspeakable. If you have young children, you get to see this little bit of innocence in your children who don't mind running around the house naked because they feel safe with their parents. They feel the delight. They feel the protection. They feel like it doesn't matter. I don't have to protect and cover up. I am safe here. Genesis 
2.25 is a picture of the contentment, the safety, and the protection of humanity in God's presence. The crowning description of the garden of delight is that they were naked and felt no shame. The bliss of Genesis 2 is capped off this way. And then, that's the end of chapter 2, and then there's an immediate, abrupt first line of Genesis chapter 3, and the reader is meant to feel it. The reader is meant to feel, I can't believe how good that what they had it. Like that, this, is, this is unspeakable to imagine a reality where that is how it was going. And then the abrupt, almost record scratch moment of Genesis 3 verse 1 says this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Okay, wait, I thought we were just talking about a place with no shame. I thought we were talking about a place that was delightful and experienced all the extravagance and the ecstasy of dancing in God's presence and being delighted in him and delighting in him. And so, wait, 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 and now there's a serpent who's crafty, other, other translations say, who was shrewd. Here's what's interesting about Hebrew narrative writing, and this happens all throughout the Old Testament, the story of the Old Testament as narrators write about narratives that are happening, stories that are happening. The narrator almost, almost never makes a comment about the characters and what they're doing. Part of how Hebrew narrative works is is that the narrator just presents you with the story and lets the reader see by the consequences that play out who was right and who was wrong. Like the narrator is not trying to make a judgment call, they're just going, here's how the story played out. Now reader, you should be able to tell who who was on the the right side of this, who was on the Lord's side, and who was not on the Lord's side. But here, the narrator has to go out of his way a little bit by describing one of the characters with a little adjective. When he says here, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field, he's making a comment to you. He's letting you know something. Here's what the narrator's saying. He's flashing some red lights. He's not telling you necessarily good or bad, yet he's just saying to you, hey, pay attention to what this character says. Because what this character says may not be what you think he's saying. There may be more behind the scenes. There may be more going on behind the curtain with the words of this serpent than you realize. Maybe, reader, you shouldn't take the serpent's words at face value because he's crafty and he's shrewd and he may be up to something. So the serpent begins by asking an apparently innocent question, which, by the way, there is no comment on the narrator's part to tell us that Eve hears from this serpent that's talking and she goes, oh my gosh, a talking serpent. Like that, that, doesn't, that doesn't come through in the pages. That's not meant to clear up all of our questions. All that that's meant to say is, is that that's not the right question to be asking. Like, well, how is there a talking serpent? I don't understand. That's not, the narrator doesn't care that you understand that, okay? This is how it went down. And so the, the narrator reads for us the question, or the, the serpent has his first question, says this. Did God actually say? And that little insertion, actually, other translations say Really? There's, there's a touch of skepticism. The, the serpent is trying to plant a little seed of doubt. Did, did God actually say that you must not eat of any tree in the garden? Okay, so here's what's interesting. We hear that. The serpent says, did God, did God really say you should not eat of any tree in the garden? That if you back up 15 verses, we didn't read it, but in Genesis chapter 2, when God does give the command about the tree, this is not at all what God says. Sounds close. It's not even close to what God said, though. Like, you can do your own assessment. 
The servant comes and says, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The reader's meant to go, wait, I, I just read what God said. Let me go back and compare these two things. Here's what God actually said. God says to them in Genesis 2, you can eat of every tree in the garden except one. And now the serpent has twisted the words. The serpent has gotten so close, he's played on it just a little bit. He says, did God really say you should not eat of any tree in the garden? The serpent's question out of the gate is meant to play with and deceive the mind. It's meant to cause doubt. It's meant to cause confusion. That Eve doesn't have written down for her what Genesis 1 captures for the reader. That Eve is going, wait, what did God actually say? What you're saying sounds close to what he said. Did God actually say I can't eat of any tree in the garden? What? That sounds so close, but maybe I'm not sure anymore. That does sound kind of right. It does sound kind of like what God said. Did I, did I mishear him? I thought he said you could, eat of any, you could eat of every tree in the garden except one, but did he really say I couldn't eat of any tree? And so here's, what, here's, the, first, here's the first step of the serpent. He's using God's words and twisting them. He's using very similar words, and he does this with us, that if you know your Bible, you know your enemy comes along and applies and misapplies the words of God to you. That he actually uses God's words to condemn you and confuse you and go, wait, God said that, but I don't think I fully understood. Wait, I thought I understood that, but now maybe I'm a little. So then Eve answers him, and she doesn't really give an exact um, recollection of what God actually said either. She adds some things to what God said in Genesis 2. She thinks she's remembered God saying, but then she adds some things to it, and then, the, and then she says, and God told us that, and this, God does say this, she says, but he did tell us that if we eat of that tree on that day, we will surely die. That, I do remember that. And then the serpent says this, you will not surely die. <laughs> Look, I, I think you misheard what God said to begin with, but let me tell you from the gate, Eve, you will not, God is not telling you the truth. You will not surely die the day that you eat of this fruit. God's holding out on you. The only reason God doesn't want you to eat that fruit is because he's withholding good from you. It's very clever. It's very crafty on the part of the serpent. That he never directly demands that they should eat the fruit. He just dances around it. In fact, it's even more crafty that the serpent doesn't go and grab the fruit and hand it to Eve and say, here, eat this. He simply entices them to do it. The serpent understands the art of seduction. He's seducing them and he's deceiving them in order to destroy them. He's a seducer and he's really good at it. In the words of Martin Luther's mentor, don't feel so bad when Satan overcomes you. He's had thousands of years of practice. He's better at this than you realize. And so this back and forth questioning with the seducing serpent and his craftiness, Eve starts to doubt. And we're told that Adam is right there with her, which means he's heard the whole thing too. And after just a shred of doubt, planting the seed of doubt, they turn to the fruit, they take it, and they eat it. Now, again, this is a little Hebrew narrative school for you, a little showing you how Hebrew narrative writers want to make points and direct the reader's attention to certain things. The moment that Adam eats the fruit... So there's this little dance with Eve and the serpent, and then after Eve and the serpent have their little conversation back and forth, the pace of the narrative picks up rapidly. It's boom, 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 and it's all driving the reader to the main point of this little interaction, the main moment in this little interaction. 
is when Adam eats the fruit. Everything that the narrator's trying to do is going, interaction between even the serpent, and then bam, 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 bam. Adam eats the fruit. And the moment he does, shalom is shattered. What was the Garden of Delight just a few verses before is decimated. The moment that Adam eats the fruit, all of the bliss, all of the ecstasy, all of the delight, everything that was known just a few verses before in the enchantment of the magical Garden of Delight that God made with and for his creatures is shattered. So if you're not a Lord of the Rings person, maybe you're a Marvel person. You should be both, but that's okay. I'll give you, there's time. Um, so if you're a Marvel person, the end of in, uh, Infinity War movie, this scene came to mind this week thinking about the Hebrew narrative, uh, the Hebrew narrator of Genesis 3 bringing us to this one moment. There's the moment at the end of the Infinity War, uh, the first uh, um, Avengers Endgame movie. Um, he says, or Thanos, the Satan character, gets the final Infinity Stone. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, I promise it's really good. But Thanos, Thanos gets the final Infinity Stone into his hand, and he now has all the power in the universe. And he snaps his fingers, and all is decimated. And, and if you've ever seen the movie, and, and, and literally, like, your favorite characters start to disintegrate, and they're dead, and the whole world is, is shifted, and everything has gone bad, and you go, there's no, wait, 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 no, 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 how, how, how are we going to, and the, the, the viewer of this moment is going, that moment changed everything. Can't be undone. The world has been forever altered in that movie at the, like, fabric, at the elemental level Nothing is as it should be, and the viewer is going, how in the world is this going to be made right? Because everything just got shattered. Literally, this, this is the same thing happening right here, that when you read that line in Genesis 3, and Adam ate it, it should have your attention in the most sobering way. Everything is decimated. And it should have our attention because you need to know that everything in your life right now that's painful, everything that is sorrowful, everything that is agonizing and depressing started with that moment in Genesis 3. All of the sin, all of the addiction, all of the confusion, all the discord, all the rage, all the cancer, all the grief, all the death, all the heartache, all the anger, all the divorce, all the human trafficking, all the abortion, all the injustice, all the wars, all the racism, all the abuse, all of it gets its inception right here in Genesis 3. All of it came into the world right there. This is a Thanos-level reckoning. That's what just happened in that one line, and Adam ate it. Boom. It's all disintegrated. And immediately after this moment, the, the moment after Adam eats the fruit, look at how the narrator is trying to let the reader know the level of sadness and desecration that just took place. He's trying to get the reader to understand the massive 180, the transition of what just was in Genesis 2 and now what is in Genesis 3. Look at verse 7 and 8. He says this. Right after Adam eats the fruit, immediately after, then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. 
And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The nakedness that used to be a sign of their bliss was now a sign of their shame. Took seven verses to change. And we're told they hid themselves among the trees of the garden. A more complete and utter desecration and transformation could not be imagined. Here's what you're supposed to do as the reader. If you've been reading since Genesis 1-1 all the way up until this moment, take it all together, the, the Eden narrative, the creation narrative of Genesis 1-3. through Do you remember the delight seven verses before? Do you remember how blissful? Do you remember the trust, the childlike trust of innocence that now has been replaced by the stain of shame? It's meant to show us that the trees that were created in Genesis 2 that were told about how God made this garden for them, for them to dance at and delight in and, and observe and just revel in God's beauty, the trees that God created for them to enjoy are now being used as the hiding place to prevent God from seeing them. There's all these clues throughout. There's so many connections between Genesis 2 and 3. Remember the bliss, and now it's been destroyed. It turned these children into orphans. It turned their intimacy into hiding. It turned delight into shame. It utterly altered the state of humanity and humanity's relationship to their maker. And we should pause at this little juncture right here after the eating of the fruit and after they saw that they were naked and they ran and they hid from their maker. We should pause right here and understand this explains a lot about us too. Not much has changed since verse seven and eight. You should know about yourself you are a natural hider. You should know about yourself that your first parents from your DNA gave you this trait. We're all natural at hiding our face. We're always afraid. We're always looking for a covering. We're all ashamed of our nakedness and we know we're naked and we know that there's imperfections and we know that there's stain and there's something that we need to hide behind in order to cover us from our shame and so it's been said before from fig leaves to 401ks we're all looking to cover our nakedness. Maybe if I could just do something to make this nagging feeling of not being enough, of not having enough, of not failing as much, of not being so weak and so needy, maybe if I could just do something, it would make this feeling go away. Maybe if there was something that I could do that would make me feel so hidden that no one would ever see me, so I'll build a life and I'll build a resume and I'll build accomplishments and I'll build a family and I'll build money and I'll build a reputation and I'll build a career and if I could just have something to hide behind that would make this feeling go away, that if I just could have something to hide myself. And so we sew coverings for ourselves in a myriad of ways. Here's what's interesting about it, though, and we see it play out with Adam and Eve. Even the attempts to cover ourselves end up making us feel more ashamed. Because nothing that we make to cover ourselves ever seems to deliver on what we want it to. In the words of Kurt Thompson, guru on shame, he says this, 
Shame tends to be self-reinforcing. We do not realize this to be happening. We're just trying to survive the moment. But indeed, this dance of hiding and feeling shame itself becomes a tightening of the noose. We feel shame, and then we feel shame for feeling shame, and it begets itself. Shame begets shame. And Adam and Eve are bathing in it. We see their shame begetting itself in how they respond to the maker. Can you relate to them? Do you know your shame? Do you know your nakedness? Do you know how ashamed you are of your nakedness? And do you know what you've been trying to do to cover it up? Do you know the good deeds you've been trying to perform to try to cover up the stain of your sin? Do you know the busying, the running around, the hurrying, the controlling, the hiding you're trying to do to try to cover your shame? And in the isolation of your hiding, do you know that isolation is where shame grows the most? And so you're trying to fend off this thing, and in the very attempt to fend it off, it doubles down on itself, that shame begets shame. That's what we see happening with Adam and Eve. Now, if this were your world, and these were your creatures, how would you respond to them? Well, we know how Adam and Eve think that God will respond to them. We see it in their actions. But let's see how the God of Genesis, the God of the Garden of Delight, responds to his image-bearing kids. So we've just had this, we've had a lot happen from Genesis 2.25 to Genesis 3, 7 and 8. So I'm going to read verse 8 and 9 now. This is transitioning us into, we've seen the serpent and Adam and Eve, and now we're going to see how the Lord steps into the story. Verse eight says, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Where are you? So if the serpent seduces, you need to know this is said with all Honor and awe and respect for the Lord, but it is very biblical. I give you many other places in Scripture. If the serpent knows the art of seduction, so does the Lord. Where are you? Is a wooing them back to himself. And in the face of the shame of his children, their terror and their hiding, the Lord gently calls out to them, where are you? Where are you? A question from the serpent just a few verses before broke the world. Did God really say that? The world got broke with a question. Now the God, the, now the God of the cosmos, God the question asker, comes to restore the world and his children with a question of his own. He's immediately moving to restore them and he does so first with a question. If Satan is the deceiver, the Lord is a healing counselor. Because just as much as questions can deceive and decimate, questions can also heal and restore. Ask any good counselor or therapist. That a good question, the right question, a particular question, actually has the power in that question to let someone know just how seen and known they are and how much they don't have to pretend when they're with you. 
The questions can absolutely, like the serpent showed us, be used to mislead, be used to deceive, be used to plant seeds of doubt, be used to punish. The questions can be asked in a very sinister and manipulative way. Questions can also be used to lead people to healing. Questions, just the question itself, can let you know something so much about not just the question asker, but about what's going on in that moment. That if you've ever been with someone who has known the art of asking good questions, they have a healing ability just in the question. Because the question lets you know in that moment, they know me. I don't have to hide from you right now. I, don't, I thought I had to do this charade. I thought I had to make you think something, but this question undoes me. This question puts down all of my armor. This question lets me know how safe it is right now. And the fact that this is safe means I can come into healing. That question has power. But Adam and Eve have actually so believed the lies of their enemy, they can't even see the Lord the way that he is coming to them. He's moving gently to restore them, but they are afraid and ashamed. He's moving towards them, but they are hiding from him. The relationship is so broke, the bliss of the Garden of Delight is so decimated that the interaction that the Lord has with Adam and Eve is just further proof of how broken their relationship now is. It's proof of how far in the shame spiral Adam and Eve are. All they can do is hide. All they can do is self-justify. All they can do is blame. Well, this woman you gave me, it's not just her fault, it's your fault that she's the one that, and you, you put her here just a chapter ago. This is your fault. I didn't do anything wrong. So to truly understand the depth of healing loaded in this question, we have to ultimately understand where the Lord is trying to lead them with the question. The Lord is not calling out to them. This is going to be true of every question we study over the next six weeks. The Lord is not calling out to them because he doesn't know where they are. He's not saying, where are you? I've looked everywhere for you. I know I made this whole thing. I know I'm omnipotent. I know I'm like, I'm the maker of the skies. But I can't, you're really good at this hiding game. And he's not saying, man, those fig leaves are really camouflaged. Like, I, I, I think, is that you behind the trees? I can't tell. The Lord is not calling out to them because he does not know where they are. He is calling out to them because they don't know where they are. And he's trying to draw them back to himself. They are hiding. They are blaming. They are self-justifying. And they cannot see it. They don't know where they are. And maybe worse, they refuse to admit where they are. That's the dance that happens between the Lord and and Adam and Eve in his questions. But here's where the Lord is trying to lead them with each question that he asks them, especially with this first one. This loaded, loving question is meant to lead Adam and Eve to repentance. Repentance is a turning away from my sin and my shame, and the word literally means a turning back, a turning around to the Lord. Repentance is a conviction and a confession of what I've done. It's an owning up to what I've done and a returning to the Lord. But we hear the word repentance, and just like Adam and Eve, because we love our shame too and because we're so used to what shame has told us that the Lord is like, We believe that we know the Lord is calling us to repentance in order to destroy us. 
But here on the very first pages of Scripture, you have proof. The Lord always calls us back to himself to heal us, not to harm us. That the question of the Lord, where are you, to lead us back to repentance, that we would be able to admit, this is where I am and this is where I've been and this is what I've done. The Lord wooing us back compared to the shame that has now Thanos ruined the world that God created. Here's what repentance is doing. Repentance is trying to restore what shame has taken away. Shame makes us turn our faces and repentance calls us to lift our faces to our Father. Shame makes us hide in the dark and repentance calls us to the healing power of the light. Shame makes us make fig leaves covering for ourselves and repentance tells us that we are safe with our Father. All of this is loaded into the question, where are you? Where are you? I know you don't know where you are right now and if you would return to me, I'll show you where you are and I'll show you who you are that you don't even know what you're doing right now. You don't even know, you don't even realize the depth of what you've just done and what that's done to my very good creation. The Garden of Delight is now a garden of shame. And do you know what's going on? I'm here to help heal that. I'm here to help restore that. But you stay hidden. You stay hiding. You stay afraid. You stay blaming. You stay self-justifying. You stay trying to prove how it's not that bad. You stay trying to prove how this wasn't your fault, and I'm calling you into repentance. Would you lift your faces and return to me? All this is loaded in the question. But some of you were saying, wait, 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 wait. Okay, so shalom was just shattered. Delight was just decimated. How can this be so simple? How does God's simple question have within it all the power to undo what was just done? Aren't we reading too much into this one question to say this one question, where are you, was meant to restore the world? Isn't that, isn't that reading a lot into the passage? <clears throat> Thank you for your critique, but the passage isn't over yet, okay? It's because at the end of this passage we see that we don't just have a wooing, question-asking God, but we have an atoning God as well. See, after this brief interaction with Adam and Eve, immediately he, he goes with these questions and they're hiding and they're blaming and they're justifying. As soon as that interaction is done, the Lord moves and he gives covenant curses to each party that played a role in the travesty. And he begins, this is so intentional by God, pay attention to this. He begins the covenant curses with the serpent. But buried in the covenant curses to the serpent is a promise to Adam and Eve, and therefore to all of us. He starts the curses with a promise of good. Look at verse 14 and 15. Can you throw this up there, Allie? I don't know what slide it's on. 14 and 15. Immediately after the shame-filled responses and the wooing questions of God says this, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. 
There's a lot going on here, and there's some imagery going on, but there's also some promises buried in this curse. Some very dense Hebrew words are used in this speech from the Lord to the serpent. So let me explain what verse 14 and 15 just said. To the prince of darkness, to the prince of evil, to the serpent, he says, there's always going to be enmity between you and the woman. Meaning, there is always going to be a war between darkness and the children of men and and woman. There's always going to be a, a feud. There's always going to be a struggle between the children of darkness and the sons and daughters of Eve. Between the offspring of the serpent and between the offspring of Eve, there will be a war. That's verse 14. And that war is going to decimate people. That war is not going to be pretty. There will be blood on the ground. There will always be enmity between you, daughters and sons of darkness, and the sons and daughters of Eve. Okay, verse 15. Then he shifts from talking about offspring in the plural, and then he begins by talking about offspring in the singular. That word is actually the Hebrew word for seed, It does mean offspring, but it can be used in the singular or the plural. And here's how we know that the narrator has shifted talking about all the descendants of Eve in the plural. And then he starts talking about the descendants of Eve in the singular. He's talking about one descendant of Eve. He says, one offspring. He says, he, singular. He's making that word that can be, it's like deer. It can be plural or singular. And here's how we know that he's shifted to talking about singular. He, One seed of the woman, one man to come from the line of Eve. I've got a plan for him. And what will that one seed do? Verse 15, well, serpent, you will bruise his heel or strike at his heel because you will be on the ground. You will strike at his heel. Another way to translate that is crush his heel, but he will crush your head. I don't know how familiar you are with one-on-one combat, but if someone's heel is crushed or someone's head is crushed, who wins? There's coming an offspring, Adam and Eve, one from your line. He will be struck in his heel. It will wound him, but he will crush the serpent's head. Genesis 3.15 known as the Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel, is a promise of the Messiah to come. The promise of the crushing of the enemy and his lies. The promise of the travel that the Messiah would do across space and time to restore what had been shattered and pay for what had been transgressed. Please understand this in the tension of Genesis 3, the buildup that we're watching happen, that we're experiencing as the reader. The moment that Thanos the serpent asks the question that decimates the delight, the moment we're in this scene, it's all happening before us, the maker immediately makes a promise to undo what the darkness has done. One day, one day, one day. It's not gonna happen tomorrow. One day though, I will make all this right. And I will crush the head of the serpent. I will decimate his darkness. I will destroy what he's done and I will restore what he has destroyed. 
And in the person of Jesus, that Messiah came. The Messiah would come to atone for our rebellion in the garden, and in doing so, he would crush the head of the serpent. To restore us to our original beauty, to our original place in the family, to restore us to the Father that we rejected in the garden. The Son of God, the Son of Eve, would make many others the sons and daughters of the King as well. That's how, the promise of Genesis 3.15 is how, when we repent, we are guaranteed to get the Father's face. Repentance does not lead us to our penance. Repentance leads us to the God who atones for us every time. It is a guarantee because the moment he calls out, where are you, he's calling you back to himself. Three verses later, he's promising to atone for all that you've done. And in repentance, it reminds the orphan that we're not orphans anymore. It reminds the transgressor that we don't have to atone for ourselves. And it reminds those of us that are full of shame that there is no shame so grave that the Father won't have you back. So where are you? Do you know? Do you know where you're hiding? Do you know what you're using to try to cover up? Do you know where you're afraid of the Father? What lies have you believed about him? Where has the serpent twisted his words to convince you that if you return to him, it won't be atoned for and you won't get his face? Would you hear the wooing of your father instead of the narrative that shame is telling you? Would you return to the father who calls out to you, atones for you, and welcomes you back? Let's pray. Jesus, um, we turn our face from you because we're afraid. It just doesn't feel like after what we've done, you would call us back and tell us what you've done. That the seed of the woman really has crushed the head of the serpent and we are free. The garden of delight, we, we can enter that place with you walking in the cool of the day because of what your son has done. Restore us. Restore us and heal us by our repentance. That repentance is not our penance. Repentance is not a, just a retelling of what we've done. It's a, it's a confession of what we've done and we lay it before what you've done. So guide us now as we come to you in your name. Amen.